In this episode of TTSA Talks, Director of Special Programs Lou Elizondo speaks with TTSA National Security Advisor Chris Mellon, and we learn a little bit more about Chris's past and how he got into the UAP issue. The two also touch base about the current season of Unidentified and answer fan questions. Welcome, everybody, to the seventh episode of our TTSA Talks. I have been voluntold that I will be your host today, so uh, thank you for having me. Hopefully, today, we are very fortunate. Um, Certainly, I consider myself fortunate because we have a gentleman on with us today, Mr. Chris Mellon. Now, for those of you who are listening out there and know the name Chris Mellon, maybe from the television show with History Channel, Unidentified America, Inside America's UFO Investigation, Chris Mellon is somebody I've had the honor and pleasure of working with and knowing of for a better portion of my 25-year career with the United States government. My initial, if you will, interaction with Chris was actually wasn't a, a direct interaction. It was uh, many, many years ago when I first came into, uh, into being a special agent in counterintelligence. I remember seeing Chris's signature block on several high-level documents involving some of our very, very sensitive investigations. So I never really had a chance to, to meet him. He was many layers of reality above me, uh, multiple echelons above me. But uh, here it is, you know, 25 years later, and uh, I have the honor and privilege of calling Chris not only a colleague, but, but a friend. And for that, I'm very thankful. So, Chris, welcome, uh, welcome to our seventh episode of TTSA Talks. Well, thanks, Liz. Great to be here, and um, thanks for that very generous introduction. I appreciate that. It's very kind to you. Um, before we go into today's episode about kind of a recap of where we are so far with, with the television program, Unidentified, I want to ask you a couple of questions, Chris, that I think our audience is probably probably wanting to know as well. Um, you know, everybody seems to know what you've done uh, working in the Senate and, of course, uh, legislative branch, and then, of course, later on in the executive branch as a, as a very senior level appointee in the intelligence field back at the Pentagon. But I'm not sure people really know who Chris Mellon is. Um, it's a bit of a loaded question, and I'm not going to ask you, uh, you know, to answer anything that you're uncomfortable with answering. But, but who is Chris Mellon? Well, there's a loaded question. Um, I would say that. Uh, uh, probably my defining characteristic is a uh, childlike curiosity and wonder about nature and the natural world. That's been sort of a driving force that led me to get involved with in the intelligence community and subsequently caused me to get involved with, uh, with this issue and uh, continues to be a, a problem and a, a challenge I try to, to manage in my daily life because I, I get distracted and pulled a lot of different directions, trying to chase different things and, and, uh, and pursue different lines of inquiry on different topics. But uh, I think that's probably the, the theme that's been cons- most consistent throughout my life. Well, you know, I think everybody knows you uh, and your persona as being a very successful businessman, somebody who's been very successful in the U.S. government, you know, a, a whole laundry list of accomplishments. Like, for example, the, you know, a lot of us call you the godfather of SOCOM, the Special Operations Command, because of your tireless work in that area trying to get that passed. Tell us a little bit what it was like growing up. You know, I think people have in their mind this idea that, oh, you know, Chris Mellon is from, from the Mellon family. And yeah, that Mellon family, right? And maybe some of them presume that you were born into a life of privilege. But 
you know, that's, that's not entirely true. I mean, you, you kind of grew up a scrappy kid and, you know, not necessarily uh, living in the lap of luxury. Can you share just a few moments with us what that was like? Yeah, nobody's ever asked me that before. And um, I don't want to go far down that road, but you're right, Lou. Um, mostly I lived in inner city Chicago and like uh, too many people today, uh, my parents were divorced. I didn't know my father. My mother was living on $12,000 a year, um, so that was our family income for a family of three at that point. And uh, my mother was somebody that had a uh, severe disability, so for my sister and I, it was uh, a lot of time spent at other people's homes uh, who would take us in, sometimes grandparents. Um, we spent a lot of time uh, on the street when we weren't at home. And uh, yeah, it was uh, uh, an inner city experience and not what some people might imagine my, my childhood might have been like. Well, thank you for sharing that. And, you know, I think it's important because I think that that adversity, a lot of people can relate to, especially today's day and age. You know, there are a lot of us who come from broken families and not everything is necessarily as it seems because you go from that type of situation and, and all of a sudden you find yourself working at some of the highest levels of the United States government and not just in one branch, like the executive branch, but also in the legislative branch. How do you go from, you know, somewhat of a, a broken family environment to now being at the top of the U S government in both branches? You know, I was very fortunate in a number of ways because I, you know, I had the benefit of uh, some great people and I had the good fortune that someone in my family was able to, to send me to some very good schools. And then later in life, uh, a pivotal thing was getting um, connected with William Cohen of Maine, Senator Cohen of Maine. It wasn't entirely luck. I, I had a strategy after graduate school and followed it, executed on it, and it worked. Um, I, I looked at the members of the Intelligence Committee. I, I thought that would be the most interesting job to have in D.C. So he was a brilliant, he was principled, he was a crossover member, so he was a, a pivotal person who, who often had the deciding vote on matters. And neither side, Republican or Democrat, could take him for granted. So he was on the driver, in the driver's seat on a lot of big issues. And then later he became uh, Secretary of Defense, was nominated by Bill Clinton, um, an extraordinary bit of good fortune, and I was able to ride his coattails, essentially. He asked me if I wanted to go to the Pentagon with him, and uh, I couldn't say no to that opportunity. So um, a lot of good fortune, and uh, I would say connecting with you know, some really, really good people. Well, I, I don't disagree with good fortune, but, but it's much more than that, and I personally witnessed it. You, know, you mentioned the word, you, had a, you said the word strategy. You had a strategy. And the one thing I've learned working with you that I admire so much, you are probably one of the finest strategists I've ever had a chance to work with. You look at things in a way that most people don't. You're constantly looking at second and third order cause and effects. You are not just looking at the battle space in front of you right now. You're looking at that battle space. What's it going to look like in the next month, in the next six months, in the next year, the next five years? And that's something you don't find very often. And I think that obviously shines through when we now, you know, forward wind the tape 20 years and everybody talks about SOCOM, what a great idea it was, but it wasn't always such a great idea. And you faced a, a tremendous uphill battle trying to get, you know, something that seems to us now common sense 
was really one hell of a challenge for you to try to get in the hearts and minds of, of political leaders and executive leaders. And I know some of those struggles you had to go through. And that's just one, one small example. And so now we go from working in, in various serious uh, areas within the U.S. government, and all of a sudden now you are a familiar face on the television. You tune in on a Saturday night, and there's Chris Mellon talking about, of all things, UFOs. How did you go from being a senior government intelligence officer and a senior advisor to the Senate to now going after something like this, where, where the topic of, of UFOs or UAPs tends to have a lot of risk associated with it, political risk and personal risk. And people will look at you and say, what the hell are you thinking? Do you mind sharing with me a little bit of how you got involved in this crazy topic we call UFOs? Sure, Lou. And, and you know, you played a, a critical role in that because it was after I got to know you that I became familiar with what was going on on the East Coast and uh, was able to uh, learn what the pilots were experiencing there. And that's what really galvanized me to take action. When I heard that those guys were getting no intel support, this wasn't going up the chain, um, they were essentially being left uh, out there to hang out and dry. And, you know, we're talking about a carrier battle group. We're talking about one of the premier assets in our entire national security architecture. We're talking. And you actually spoke to some of the people that were involved in those incidents, too. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, that was so compelling to, to hear that, uh, to be looking these guys in the eye and hearing it from them firsthand and seeing the emotion. Uh, in addition to seeing um, the videotapes and other things, that really had a profound impact on me. And uh, I just felt that was something that couldn't be ignored. The stakes were too high. And um, I, I think you have to do the right thing. You have to follow your principles. And if you're on solid ground, you're okay. You know, things can be, there could be a stigma or whatever, but if you're, if you know you're on solid ground and you've got the facts to back it up, you're going to be okay. You know, that's, that's my way of looking at it. And once we had those facts in hand and once we learned about the Nimitz incident, I knew we could pursue this and defend it adequately and make our case that any reasonable person confronted with that information would have to say, wow, there's really something going on here. And uh, that has, in fact, uh, been the case. And so now with the show, we're, we're our second, middle of our second season moving forward. What do you hope to accomplish with this vehicle, with this History Channel television? What is your personal goal you'd like to see accomplished with this show? That's a great question. So I'm reminded um, uh, when I think about that question of an article that I saw the other day in the Wall Street Journal. And in this article, in this prominent publication uh, read around the world, they printed this op-ed that reflected a stunning ignorance about this issue. And obviously, this, the, the author is a, a bright and well-educated person, and obviously the editors are. And yet, in this op-ed, he says, well, gee, if there's really you know, UFOs, how come nobody, uh, commercial airline pilots never see them? And how come passengers never see them? <laughs> well, you know, anyone who saw our last episode Anyone, in fact, who spent 20 minutes on the internet just Googling those terms would find out that actually this is a routine occurrence. And not only does it happen, but it sometimes leads to us scrambling F-15 fighters and NORAD gets involved. And, you know, multiple commercial pilots are verifying what FAA is seeing on their radars. 
and it escalates to the degree that we're actually scrambling fighter jets. So uh, there's an incredible uh, dearth of information, uh, fundamental information, basic information. And I think if nothing else, hopefully we can help people understand the fundamentals and the basics, which is there, there really is something going on. It's, it's demonstrable. It's, it's happening all around us. It's happening globally. It's been happening for a while. Uh, we still don't understand it. It's probably multiple phenomenon, but um, it, it, whatever it is, as I say, it's probably multiple different things. Uh, it's, it's territory that hasn't been explored and um, needs to be. So far this season, one of my favorite episodes is actually, I think it's the second episode. It's, it's really an episode that primarily involves you and it involves triangles. Now, I know being a friend of yours, that's always been a topic for you that has had specific interest. But do you mind sharing with us today, what is it about the triangle phenomena of all the different types of sightings that are out there? The triangles really seem to gnaw at you. They seem to be the most compelling. And I'm just curious, what is it about the triangles from your perspective you think is, is, is so compelling? One of the reasons for that is that, uh, to me, there's an incredible signal-to-noise ratio with that particular uh, phenomenon. So there are incredible examples from all over the world that are nearly identical. They involve police forces, military forces, as well as uh, civilians, uh, numerous photos, videos, it's, it's such a strong recurring pattern. They're almost always at night. They're almost always have a, a light in each corner. It's an equilateral triangle. It often has a red light in the center. They move the same way in these reports. They are moving very slowly and very quietly. And then suddenly will engage in extreme bursts of acceleration and then slow down again. They're at low altitudes generally. So when you see this over and over and over again from people of all different manner of backgrounds and all, on, on all of the continents and all over the world, um, it's striking uh, to read these raw reports from people who aren't aware of what's been reported by others. They have no connection with this issue. And yet what they're seeing and reporting is, is identical to what so many other people have reported. And the other thing about it is, as an Intel person, when I, started asking myself, why would somebody create a vehicle like this? And, and why would it operate in that manner? As an Intel person, you look at that and you say, wow, if you wanted sort of an optimal Intel asset, sort of a, uh, you know, almost in a sci-fi, if you could pick something, uh, sort of the ultimate collector, it would be something like that. It would be essentially undetectable. It would fly very low to the target to uh, in, in, enable it to collect extremely precise information, maybe even subsurface with ground penetrating radars and so forth. Um, it would be capable of extreme acceleration in case it needed to, to get out of the area, in case things got hot. They have these, these three bright spots, which could be sensors, either uh, transmitting or receiving for triangulation, for mensuration, as we say, uh, measurement purposes. And um, it has a black body, which is going to absorb rather than reflect uh, light and other kinds of radiation to make it less detectable and so forth. So it just kind of rang my bell when I, when I looked at that as an Intel person and saw that configuration 
And that method, that manner of operation, it's just too powerful to ignore that, that recurring pattern. You know what? I, I agree with you. There's this weird, eerie consistency that we see with these triangles over and over again. And to the point where, you know, you have to scratch your head and wonder, are we looking truly at the same, in some cases, the same vehicle uh, time and time again? You, you talk about this behaving in a way that is really not so uncommon from from, uh, from an adversarial perspective or, or even from our perspective. We want to cut, conduct reconnaissance and surveillance. You know, frankly, a black triangle probably is not a bad idea uh, because you can do all sorts of stuff with it. You know, we have B-2 bombers right now and even our F-117s uh, that have a very much a triangular pattern. Even back in World War II, both the Axis and the Allies were experimenting with these Delta Wing type configuration aircraft. So, so they can fly and there's been some dirigibles recently. You know, to some degree, it, of all the type of UAP out there, I would agree with you that the triangles seem to have the most, if you will, human-like intention, if that's even fair to say, that the way that they are performing and behaving is an awful lot like the way a foreign adversary or maybe we would, we would behave when conducting some sort of active surveillance and reconnaissance. That's, for me, the most concerning. You know, human beings behave in a very typical fashion. And if you wanted to build the, the perfect stealth vehicle, you're right. I mean, a triangle would certainly be one way to go, paint it black, uh, put some sensors at equal distance on all corners, and, you know, use it for whatever, whatever purpose you need to use it for. Very interesting. So, Chris, let me ask you this. What is your most favorite episode? When I say favorite, I'm not asking for stylistic or artistic. I'm, I'm talking about what is one that you that has come out that you can say, you know, I'm glad this came out that people can finally see this for themselves. My favorite episode overall in the with Unidentified uh, actually was, I believe, episode four of our first season, my all-time favorite. We had the active duty guys on describing what you and I had, had heard um, before we, we took this issue um, and tried to, to go public with it and bring it to the public's attention. And that was precedent setting. To the best of my knowledge, that was the first time that active duty pilots had ever described uh, encounters with these objects, uh, been permitted to do so by the military. And uh, they were articulate and people got to, to see firsthand some of what you and I had seen that, that motivated us to such a, uh, an incredible degree to try to get behind these people uh, because they needed some support and they weren't getting it. And so of, of all of the episodes, I would have to say that's, that's my favorite. This season, I tend to think about different segments more than episodes. You know, your trip to South America is, is uh, one of the highlights the testimony of uh, Colonel Cobb about his NORAD experience is another one. I think uh, that the civilian pilots last night were very effective in conveying very credible people, obviously very bright, very solid. And former uh, military. Yeah, and former military. You know, the kind of people you want to have in the cockpit, you know, really mm -hmm. solid people. So um, I think all of this is helping people to understand that um, this is an experience that is um, not limited to, to people wearing tinfoil hats, that in fact, 
it's a fairly widespread phenomenon, far more commonplace than, than people uh, generally realize, and um, something that we still uh, know very little about. I think a lot of the, the audience who are really savvy know, too, that you were one of the chief architects in getting the right information to the right people, particularly as it, as it deals with Congress. And we're now seeing, uh, you know, major movement uh, in that area. You have recent statements by Senator Marco Rubio out of Florida uh, and several others on the record saying this is a very serious topic. And, and they're only saying this after receiving some, some classified and sensitive briefings about this topic. And so a lot of that is, is really because of you. We owe that to you. Unfortunately, you don't really see a lot of the behind the scenes work because when you're talking about a TV show, everything is super compressed to, I think, what is it, like 48 minutes, you know, minus commercial. So, you know, there's a lot that the audience doesn't see. And that kind of leads us to our, to our first question. And this one's for you, Chris. Uh, it comes, this is all from social media, from, from the Twitter sphere and Facebook and Instagram. Uh, the gentleman's name is Bill. And he specifically asks, where can I read the transcripts of your interviews with the various witnesses? The snippets shown on each episode leave out a lot of questions and answers due to time constraints, et cetera, which I understand, and seem so unevenly edited, breaks and insertions, that information is sacrificed for entertainment. So I guess my question to you is, uh, Chris, is there a way that our audience can maybe get more information? You know, we're, we're filming on a 50, sometimes 100 to 1 ratio, so every Every minute you see on camera, there's 99 minutes left, you know, that never see the light of day. Any thoughts or suggestions on Bill's question? Hmm. You know, unfortunately, um, you know, working in the Senate, when, whenever you had a hearing, you had a stenographer there recording everything, making a transcript. So there was always a complete record on file, and, and obviously we don't have the benefit of that. So in many cases, all I have are handwritten notes. Um, and then, of course, we do have the, the recorded information that um, the History Channel has. Um, all of that information, that digital information is stored. It would probably require someone accessing that and then transcribing the, the full recorded interviews to, uh, to produce transcripts. Um, I'm not sure else, how else we'd go about doing that. Um, you know, I wonder if maybe History Channel would be able to put out like a behind-the-scenes thing because you know but people don't realize this is you know this is not scripted this is you know really history channels along for the ride with us they're not setting anything up it's a very fluid situation and what most people don't know is that you and i are actually very much involved in the developing and the vetting of the leads etc uh maybe we could bring this up to history channel but maybe there's a way to put kind of like a an extended cut or maybe a behind the scene uh mm -hmm. look maybe online for some of those people who are curious so we can we can certainly bring that up yeah, we can ask him about it. Um, yeah. Absolutely. And, and the, you know, Bill's right. There, there are uh, some nuggets of information in those conversations that, that didn't make it into the show uh, for various interviews. I think a lot of them are important, too. So I'll, I think let's, let's do it. We'll go ahead and bring it up and let's talk to, to the production crew, see if there's a way we can make that, some of that available. Yeah, fair enough. Good question. Okay, so the next one is from uh, <laughs> Twitter, UFO Satan. Um, I think, so there's a couple characters there uh, on, on the Twitter sphere. One is a guy named UFO Jesus, and then the other one, I guess, here is a UFO Satan. Beside the, the, the interesting name, the, the question is really good. Um, this one actually might be more posed to me. 
Is this season aiming for a quote-unquote crescendo moment like the end of season one? The last moment with Lou during the final episode was absolutely chilling. Was that done purposefully by editing, or was it a precursor to the season? Uh, the answer to that is neither. What you see is what you get. Um, it wasn't done deliberately to add any type of artificial drama. Uh, it wasn't done by editing to try to get people to become more intrigued. It is what it is. Uh, there's been a few times where I'm asked a question that's very uncomfortable, and uh, I sometimes don't want to answer it for whatever reason. Sometimes it's professional, sometimes it's personal, and that happened to be one of those cases. I think what people will realize when they're watching the show, we're not actors. Um, in fact, we're, we're, <laughs> we're, we're not even TV talent. We're, we're just a bunch of ex-government bureaucrats that are trying to highlight this, this issue and, and the seriousness of this topic. So um, what you see is what you get, and um, there, is no, there is no artificial hype um, going on in the show to try to, if you will, elicit a, an emotional response. That was done exactly as, as you see it, and I guess I'll leave it at that. All right, so the next question we have here, I think, is for you. It's, by, uh, it's on Instagram, music and film dude, Chris. What are the most noticeable patterns you have figured out with the UAPs and what are they particularly interested in? We know about military nuclear facilities. Anything else? Well, I think when you look at the data, one of the things that, and this is important, that emerges is that we're not dealing with a single phenomenon. We're probably almost certainly dealing with multiple phenomenon. And at some point when we become more sophisticated and have enough data, enough analysis, we'll be able to perhaps untangle those threads and begin to identify signatures that are uniquely associated with these different phenomenon, different kinds of vehicles or whatever. Um, I think that becomes apparent when you begin to look at the, the whole body of data. Uh, you know, again, most people don't realize this, but, the Mutual UFO Network, for example, has over 100,000 cases that have been logged. Um, they have hundreds with video and photographs and so forth. There are other organizations. Um, the, the National UFO Reporting Center has maybe 70,000. Um, in addition to that, we think probably there are five to ten uh, incidents that are not reported for each one that is based on uh, sort of the informal surveys. So there's a lot of information out there. And from that, some patterns begin to emerge. One of the strongest, as you suggested, is the, the activity around uh, nuclear development and nuclear weapons sites. And that often involves uh, very close sort of encounters um, that are violating restricted airspace. And so that, that makes them especially concerning and especially notable. Beyond that, I think perhaps the other thing is that the level of activity we see around um, oceans and lakes. Um, there, there are so many instances, uh, as was the case with the Tic Tac, of, of activity uh, seemingly associated with, uh, with the ocean uh, or, or other deep bodies of water. A lot of sightings around the shoreline or, or off the coast. And those are precisely some of the same conclusions we, we arrived to when we were at ATIM. So, yeah, I mean, those, those patterns persist right? They're, they're, <laughs> they're still continuing to this day. Yeah. And I think one of the, the important things is when I, when I talked about the objectives for the show, 
once the public begins to understand and the government the extent of this phenomenon, then you know, we will really be in such a, a better position to take action and collect more information and start to, to then reveal what is really going on. Most people will do the right thing with the right information. I mean, that's my assumption anyway. I think we're beginning to see that already with the government, with the uh, oversight committees. Once they finally were informed of what's going on, they, they had been kept in the dark heretofore. Once they did become aware, they started to act on that information. And as we continue to expand the circle of people who have a familiarity with this and sort of understand uh, uh, that, that this is real and it's been going on for a long time and it's it's very substantial there's very um, and there's some rock-solid evidence in cases uh, regarding uh, vehicles um, not just um, plasma or nights lights in the night sky but actually discernible detectable vehicles that are intelligently controlled and uh, maneuvering um, then I think that opens the door to taking it to, to a new level. And um, I, hope, I hope that someday we'll, we'll get more uh, insight and, and more solid answers and, and perhaps solve the mystery. Well, we have time for two more questions. I think this one's directed to me. So this is Kim from Twitter. The questions that are asked to Lou at the end of the episode, does he know those will be asked? His reactions look real. No, I don't know they're going to be asked. In fact, that's why you see my reactions. There is no script. Um, I, I don't know what any, anybody can ask me anything at any time. And what you see is what you get. I, this is kind of related to the first question that I, I guess I took. No, those, my, my reactions are happening as they're happening. And as you see me processing information and trying to formulate a response, uh, you know, I'm balancing a lot of things. I, I, obviously, I still have my security clearance. I don't want to violate my NDA. Um, I don't want to be you know, uh, in, <laughs> be uh, charged with any type of criminal activity. I certainly don't want to compromise national security information. I also want to be informative, but at the same time, I also know when my opinion doesn't count. Um, as I've told people before, it doesn't matter what I think. Uh, my job's pretty simple. Collect the truth and speak the truth. What matters is what you think, the public. You know, it's, it's a lot like, like taking a case and bringing it before the jury. My job is simply to collect the evidence. That's it, and present it to the jury. And in this case, you, the audience, you, Kim, you're you're the jury. You're you're the one who matters most. What this information means to them. So a lot of times, I'm trying to balance inside my brain um, all these these things and trying to come up with a suitable, succinct answer. And quite frankly, sometimes sometimes there's just not. Sometimes silence is is the best course of action, I guess. So there you have it. Okay, so Chris, one more question, and this is definitely for you. This is from Facebook. Uh, his name is Brian. Uh, could be a her, I presume. If you had the ability to drive one point home to the entire U.S. public related to UAPs, what would it be? That point would be that this is real, this is happening, and it's extremely important. It has profound potential national security and scientific ramifications. We've got to pursue this and find out whether a potential adversary is behind this. Um, uh, if not, who then is? And uh, how does this um, capability work? How does this technology work? Uh, 
um, because those are you know truly profound um, questions with very far-reaching impl implications and the only way we're going to get answers is when when the public I think uh, begins to take it on board and understand and ask their government for for a response and for questions Chris that's wonderful I think I think I, I agree wholeheartedly with that and and I think if we could just take a moment to not only thank our audience, but, you know, there are some people still in the U.S. government that have helped facilitate this conversation, uh, and I'm sure it hasn't been easy, and these individuals are, are still, you know, they're still active duty, and, and they are still, in some cases, uh, working for the Department of the Navy and, and DOD. I think we need to recognize that they are still working very diligently in trying to solve this enigma and that this is a, a group effort. Uh, we need the help of everyday private citizens to engage their leadership and let, let their elected officials know it's okay to have a conversation about, about this topic. Uh, and at the same time, we need to recognize the efforts that are going on behind the scenes in large part due to people like you to keep the conversation going and, and try to, avoid the potential pitfalls of going down conspiracy theories or making the government our enemy or, you know, going down all the various, if you will, side roads that, you know, really they're interesting maybe to talk about, but they don't really lead anywhere as far as a, from a decision-making process. So um, I do want to recognize those individuals as well. I'd also like to take a moment just to recognize some of our production crew, uh, AC and Lisa, and of course, Carrie, who are working diligently behind the scenes to get this information out to the public. Um, obviously, without them, we can't do it. And most importantly, a, a big thank you to you, Chris, but also our audience who are tuning in uh, every week or so to sit down and have a cup of coffee or a hot cup of tea and, and listen to us, to us chat. Lou, thank you very much. I'm just your understudy on the, uh, on the program. I'm just your kind of foil Spock to Kirk, as we say, or something like that. You're the, <laughs> You're the guy on point. You're the, the flag bearer on this uh, on this whole operation. You're the guy who, who left his uh, very substantial um, and interesting position and career position in the government to to put your your full weight behind this. So, well, I, I appreciate that, I Chris. But you have to. You know, I also I also think there's people like I said who are still working behind the scenes and who are also risking a lot. Right? We've got some friends of ours on the hill that uh, despite yeah. some of the uncomfortable questions being posed, they are facing this challenge head on. And, you know, that has to be, that has to be uh, lauded. You're absolutely right, Lou. And I'd like to add one point uh, with regard to the importance of the audience and um, the people that are, that are following this issue. Um, to just provide a simple example, it was pressure from the American people in response to Sputnik, when they found out that the Russians had surpassed us in, in space technology, it was public concern and pressure that led to the U.S. space program and got us on the moon first, planting an American flag on the moon, and spun off hundreds if not thousands of new technologies that helped to add to productivity and advanced uh, our standard of living and so forth. So. Um, everybody, uh, th their interest and their support makes a difference. That's how it works. Yep, agreed. And as servants of the public, you and I both know at the end of the day, it's all about, about the people, right? Um, it's yep. not about politics. We took an oath to defend our country from all enemies, foreign and domestic, and more importantly, to serve the American people. 
not necessarily political whims. So uh, thank you again, Chris. It's always a sincere honor and pleasure to, to speak with you. Uh, I'm, I'm really happy that our audience got a chance to, to, to also know a little bit more of, of what makes Chris tick. I think it's fascinating. You have an incredible background. Someday they're going to have to write a book about you because, uh, you know, what I, what I hear sometimes around the coffee table and the dinner table uh, is just uh, unbelievable. It, it'd be, I, I, really, I think the, the American people would, would have a whole new level of appreciation for you if they just knew, you know, just one one hundredth of what you had to go through to get to where you are. So thank you for your service. Thank you for your time. And, and thank you for being a, being a friend. You're too kind, Lou. Thank you very much. All right, folks. Thank you very much for tuning in. Until next time, this is Lou Elizondo. Uh, whether you like it or not, I am your host for, uh, for this episode. And look forward to speaking with you next time. Take care and God bless. For more TTSA Talks, please visit tothestarsacademy.com. 